good afternoon uh, or good evening or good morning, depending on where you're listening from. Uh, I'm David Alexander with Peter Evans and a very special guest, Mr. Volko Runke. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? Oh, good afternoon. I'm very well. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you. We're we're here to talk about the uh, Consim Jam uh, from back in the fall. We spoke with Morgan a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're uh, talking to Jason Carr's people. We're trying to find a good <laughs> Your people are talking to his people. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and today uh, again, we're we're really thankful for some time with uh, uh, Mr. Runke, and uh, we have a. a, a full slate of questions and some other uh, ideas we were batting around in terms of kind of follow-up questions. But I guess the obvious questions uh, question is, how did you become involved with the Consim Jam in the first place? Uh, well, that by invitation, and I don't know if I, if I, I'm not sure of this, but I think that, um, that Fred was in touch separately with Jason and, and Jason tapped me. It went something like that, but of course they'll know the details, but basically by invitation and um, in addition to just the, you know, the inherent fun and, and coolness of it, at that point um, I was already well along involved in uh, organizing with many other people a design of my own our design contest rather uh, of um, of our own called the Zenobia Award and which we're doing, you know, it's a, it's a just, you know, volunteers collected up. I much like, you know, Fred and Joe and Jason and the rest. And so we don't know what we're doing, you know, we're just experimenting and going through it the first, first time. And so uh, it was, um, I thought would be very useful to me personally to um, see how Fred and company organized this, see how it worked out, um, actually get some experience judging, um, you know, consim game design submissions and giving feedback and getting reaction to that and just seeing how the whole thing worked. And, uh, and that indeed worked out that way. Um, similarly, I, I got to judge um, the first round for um, cardboard Edison uh, contest, a very well-established contest in that case. And and again, in addition to it's just interesting and, and fun to do it, uh, very um, useful to me in terms of how um, those folks, the, the Zinsleys, organize that and what it, you know, what it's like to try to apply criteria and judge among, you know, many different submissions. Was it like what you expected or was it different um, in both cases or all three cases, I suppose, um, as you're going forward with the Zenobia Award? Uh, I actually do think it was as I expected in that I've been very happy so far with the Zenobia Award, how um, it's worked out and how sort of a lot of plans and imaginings that we've had um, seem to be bearing fruit. But that's in the at the at the higher level in the details there's it's just i learned a lot in terms of you know actually experiencing having a panel of judges all you know evaluate the mm. same games on the same criteria and where we're disagreeing or um just reading the um you know the advisories that cardboard edison gives their judges the criteria that they use how they um crunch things together so i, I mean i learn a lot of details 
but overall, yeah, I, I feel like um, we're on firm footing. And in all cases, we've talked to other um, competitions and co um, uh, contests and scholarships and the like in the area of commercial board game design. So I'm trying to kind of, I guess, synthesize all that into my own experience. But yeah, I, I do I do feel like um, the, 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 the common elements of practice do seem to be stronger than anything that's like, oh, that's strange. I wonder why they do it that way. Um, that's interesting because we, we, we talked a little bit about that with, with, uh, Morgan and I guess there was some sort of, I guess the criteria were fairly flexible for the concept jam, uh, this time around. You want to talk a little bit about how you overcame that? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, I think, I think it was the, the contestants got 72 hours to design a game and the judges got 72 hours to figure out what the criteria would be. Like that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, uh, yeah, we didn't have ahead of time, um, criteria. And I think this, I, I don't know if, if, if Fred would say this or not, but it seems to me also part of, you know, they're also doing this to see how this would, would work out, right? This was consim game jam number one. Um, and it probably would be ideal. I think it would be ideal for the contestants to have the criteria set ahead of time, so they kind of know what the what the aim points are. We felt, as judges, I think we all felt this way. We we wanted to have some, and so I'd already been thinking about it, of course, for Zenobia, and I tried to come up with some that would make sense for the description of of the game jam and what you know what contestants were being asked to do and to translate that into potentially, they're not really objective, potentially, <laughs> potentially objective criteria ones, at least to structure our discussion really among the judges, I think is what, what the criteria really do. And I, I weighted them, um, did up a spreadsheet and shared that with Jason and Morgan and just said, well, here's what I'm doing. And I, I think they ended up using either same or similar thing. And uh, and then we produced our results. And I found that very, very helpful in terms of, again, um, seeing on a screen in front of me, I mean, it's my own numbers and comments and like, but seeing my, you know, um, broken out why I, you know, might maybe liked, was more attracted to one design than another. I mean, certainly Fred and Joe have said it's, uh, it's the one thing that they would definitely change next time they did it. But um, as a participant, I would also point out that none of us participants um, spotted that that wasn't a criteria either. We were all just too excited to get stuck in, I think. Yeah, it didn't mar the experience. Um, and and I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. And I think that that, I mean, again, it's not like there was a you know, huge cash prize or a mm. trip to Las Vegas or anything like that, <laughs> right? I mean, the, you know, in terms of the, the stakes, I think doing it, I hope at least doing it is the thing, right? And, uh, is, and, and the idea was to have, have fun for 72 hours and then get, then get some feedback. But the, the feedback is almost, uh, you know, the, the after, the after effect. The yeah, after I agree with that, yeah. You know, as a, a career educator, it's interesting. We have this discussion all the time. I, I taught high school and I've since moved over into administration. But 
we sometimes say we've over over rubriced the king. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're saying do exactly this and you will get this, and you know, maybe you need to have it little be a little bit more gray so they're a little more creative. Yeah, and and of course, at the end of the day, you can delineate everything you want, but it's a human endeavor. It's unique every time, and. Th- and there's a lot of interpretation and feeling, and that's, I guess, why there are judges. I mean, if you could make it just a calculation, you wouldn't, you wouldn't need me. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and I think you know, you said that it's not objective, but you need to have something that you can measure that judgment against, don't you? You need a mix of both um, in order to make it approachable and comprehensible for everybody, as far as you can. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's, um, it's a structure. Yeah. And I think the structure is very helpful. And when I say it's, you know, it, it can't ultimately be objective. I mean, I was a, I was an intelligence analyst. That was my, my career. And we strove for objectivity. Objectivity was a very high um, value in intelligence analysis, but it's kind of like absolute zero or the speed of light, you know, yeah. yeah. You, you, you you aim for that, but you realize you will always be affected by personal biases. And of course you will be because that's biases are useful to us. We have them because they help us, you know, filter very complex mm. inputs and come up with, you know, and get down to something reasonable. And in fact, we're paying you for your experience and your interpretation. Mm-hmm where you've come from, how you've lived your life, and how your perspective and how you see things. But the, 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 the key is to recognize as much as you can and then mitigate um, biases that are, that, are, that are not helpful to you. And so if you give it a structure, it just helps you evaluate, well, okay, now let me, why do I really think think that it's because of this, but that doesn't fit what we said was the actual criteria for success here. Mm-hmm. Aha, I've misapplied, you know, I've allowed this bias to mislead me from um, the the objectives or something like that, right? So it's all these kinds of, you know, guide rails and talk about this, then talk about this, then talk about this structure, you know, procedure and all that, that we're, we're trying to walk ourselves to the objectivity, even knowing we're never really going to get there. Yeah. And I think, again, that's, uh, that's why we have all these rubrics in place because the, there's always going to be that kid that comes up to you and says, why did I get an 88 again? Mm-hmm. Be like, well, you lost these points here and here. And that's um, a fair question, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I think that was sort of a golden rule that they kind of drill in your head when you're in, in, in school to become a teacher is always be able to explain why, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so you, you mentioned Zenobia and I think that's probably going to come up here again, but our next question is what does an event like this mean to you as an established designer, uh, or an established developer? So I love to see, um, the design, world thriving and you know just just as as i think about zenobia and why i got involved in that i'm frustrated if i see things channelized too much or graying too much um and so here was an 
opportunity to have a number of folks, some who'd done lots of designing before and some who hadn't, um, just pitch in and and expend uh, creative effort and potentially give us something new, right? And to me, I mean, I'm, I, I work on designs for years. I just can't imagine 72 hours, I mean, you know, and producing something. I mean, I guess I've never tried it, but it just, and I'm like, okay, you know, who's gonna wanna do that, first of all, who'd put themselves through that? And, and, and what are they gonna come up with? So I was absolutely, you know, blown over by, first of all, the number of teams that were involved and then the quality uh, of what was produced. It's really, ex it was extraordinary. And including, I mean, and the completeness of it too. I mean, you know, rules and cards and art and tabletop simulator module and a video about it. I mean, it's just, anyways, it was phenomenal. And so to see that, that first of all, that there's that much energy out there uh to see what can can still be done um you know it just makes me very optimistic about the future of the whole um hobby and endeavor of um conflict simulation games and you know put against the you know depression that so many board war gamers were in in the 1980s and 90s of oh you know computers are going to replace this whole hobby and everybody's going to just grow old and die out and you know this will just be a thing of the past i mean it just the consum game gen is just one of many um demonstrations of just the opposite is happening uh so so as a as a designer that's what i like to see i want to be part of a thriving blossoming community of of designers and players and developers and artists and publishers and all that. and 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 so so here it is in action so you mentioned about things maybe falling into channels i think i understand what you mean by that but do you mean this sort of the same ideas being reiterated again and, and sort of a lack of creativity and What's that grayness that you were uh, describing? Is that to do with sort of genre boundaries <laughs> or mechanical boundaries? Could you just uh, go into a bit more detail? Sure. That, well, I think that with the graying of the hobby was, so, you know, the idea that everyone's just going to be old. You know, uh, I see, yes. You know, old, old grown yard types pining away for the golden age of the 1970s until they're dead. Um, <laughs> so, no, but but in terms, yes, exactly what you said about, about channels. Um, I mean, it's a it's their pathways that that determine where we are um pathways determine the shape of language um this is like the you know why is the keyboard on a typewriter the way it is it has to do with a very old mechanical typewriters it, it's it's completely useless arrangement for electronic keyboards but we keep it because we got used to it it's a pathway right so same mm -hmm. thing with war games right um tabletop models are extremely effective for examining complex human affairs from history. Simulation board games, fantastic medium for fun, exploration, training, education, research, analysis, all that. 
And so much of the hobby that is serious about historical simulation is focused on military affairs. That's by happenstance. That's because of where it came from in the 1950s and 60s. And within that, just within war games, we're focused on big wars, big European wars, wars with Americans in them, you know, um, and, and World War II just dominates. Now, I love World War II as a topic, and I, pl I play a ton of the games, and I still do today, and I don't knock that, but it's a little bit frustrating that um, there's so much devotion of, of, of energy and airtime to just a very narrow set of slices of human history, given what there is in history to explore. So there are these big troughs in the coverage of the genre that, you know, I, I would love to, to see fill in and they are filling in. It's just, I'd love to see that happening faster. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised to hear you say that because obviously uh, you've exemplified what you're talking about by jumping into topics like Nevsky uh, and um, obviously uh, coin has become a phenomenon, but um, yeah, I mean, it, and I, I don't think that's going to stop anyone from producing games about the East Front or the Battle of Bulge, which is nor fine. should it. Uh, but I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, so you're you're looking at the submissions. Uh, you're you're impressed by the the quality and the variety. But what specific things caught your eye when you were judging, and why? So I can. Um... I mean, I, I did try to go back to my um, rubric, as you put it. So we, so, uh, you know, in, and I'm just tell you, cause this is what, what caught my eyes when I saw something that, that did this well and uh, in a raid. So I, we have engagement, innovation, completeness, and coherence in a kind of a descending order. And in, in engagement, you know, I, I Usually what catches you with a game is when you play it and you have, you know, you just really enjoy playing it, right? And so here it, it couldn't be that. I mean, we couldn't say, well, gameplay is great because we're not really playing the games. There's just no, there's no chance to do that. So I thought of, you know, imagining, right? I'm, I'm, I'm making decisions. I'm going through this world. Uh, whatever and 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 that's the that's maybe the first most important and again okay so how objective is that right it's you know it's my imagination it's my and it's my it's my taste but at least i can i can um give the proper weight to to that aspect and innovation is ne next to that which is in part mechanical how you know, how are you taking, in this case, the contest said, well, you have to start with with an existing coin game and some of those components, but then you're repurposing them. So part of it is how creative are you in repurposing, you know, in transforming the, the, the map and the pieces into some other setting that works with those pieces? How, so how creative is that? And, you know, so how much are you transport? If you're not transforming it very much, you're doing a very similar topic on a similar 
map, then that's not too innovative. But the other part of it is also is where are you taking us? And this gets back to that earlier um, uh, conversation we were just having about new settings and new topics and new perspectives. And so f for that, I mean, I'll just give an example of, um, uh, of one of them. Um, Seller of Weapons, which was about using the distant plane map, and it was set in the war in Afghanistan, just like a distant plane. But instead of playing to pursue the war and achieve the objectives of winning the war, you're all your arms sellers. And in the context of that, um, in the context of that, you're doing um, acquisition and delivery and sales to the various factions. And the various factions are doing are using that those weapons to some degree to battle it out among themselves in a you know simplified way. Well, I just thought that was fantastically innovative. Um, and some other questions about how much how interesting it would be to play, you know, given the mechanics. But it, but that to me is five out of five on innovation because I would never have thought of doing doing that. It's a you know commercial pick up and deliver economic competition game, and your market is a simulation of a dynamic conflict. And, and so your economic game that you're playing is interacting with influencing and being influenced by the, in effect, bots who are fighting their war, which makes total sense in terms of, 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 of simulating the real world. And it's a, just a really cool twist that, that usefully uses the starting point of a distant plane components to give you what has to be a very, very different um, um, play experience that is then examining a something that's inside, you know, that's beneath the surface of the original setting, right? Um, so that just caught that caught my eye. I think Peter might have a follow-up comment since I, I believe he was one of the designers of that game. I was indeed, yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm thrilled that he thought it was a five out of five for innovation. That's, that's a really nice thing to hear. Um, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask what uh, designs caught your eye and why is the next question anyway. Um, so it'd be really great to hear about some of the other designs as well. But yeah, that that was the the aim we were looking at with the uh, Sellers of Weapons game was, well, what kind of twist can we put on it that's going to be interesting and innovative? Um, and I think uh, in terms of the mechanics, you know, it's, it's evolved from where it was uh, before my uh, co-designer, who really was sort of the main brains behind the idea, uh, Rashid, he is still working on um, some stuff that has, has made it more, uh, as you were saying, more of that kind of market-driven and pick-up-to-deliver-stop um, gameplay. But what were some of the other um, designs that caught your eye? Well, um, yeah, no, congratulations on, on that. Then I actually didn't know that. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so that was uh, that was some good fortune. Um, yeah, uh, but, but yeah, no, very well done, and I'm really pleased to hear that it's still uh, moving forward. So with regard to um, 
Vijayanagara, the winner. And this just goes mm. to also to illustrate this aspect of um, even with structure, there's still judges' interpretation. None of the three judges had the same top three games, mm. and v v Vijayanagara was one that we all had in our in our top three, and how we ended up there. And uh, for me, it was you know starting with the, the the one little piece that maybe it didn't have is it wasn't necessarily that new mechanically from coin series um the coin series mode but what it did have is a very to me anyway very fresh topic uh and um and not just you know players against each other but the the the, the mongols who are coming in as a uh, kind of an automat automaton menace um and i thought you know well, i would just love to I love I love that kind of thing where you're playing against players, but you also have, again, the game is reacting dynamically um, as a part of your environment. Your environment is not just set, and so the same way as in you know in your game, the 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 war in Afghanistan might do its thing while you're delivering your weapons. Here we've got this um, this group that comes in that that is non-trivial in terms of of it if it's a threat to you and you've got to deal with it and it's i then i imagine doing different things each time so that to me just all seemed very engaging um the, the you know the, the art that they had prepared um again just you know makes you want to d dive in and 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 get going um they had already um tested it several times had had play test results um it just had a very um polished appearance so it did well on completeness and it hung together it was uh it, it cohered um which is to say uh when i looked at the model and thought about the history that it was portraying it um it, it was i bought the model you know it was it was it was uh um compelling that this game would in fact um transport me to that era of india so do you think we might see a, a volko rinky design with uh, that element involved with that uh, non-player or, or, or Thomasa, uh aspect oh so it's it is in a i think in a more marginal way you can find it in falling sky mm -hmm. uh, which i did with andrew because of course the can. four main yeah <laughs> the more <laughs> <laughs> no no um Although the, it's the Germanic tribes, although they're a, um, you know, they're not a big player at that point because mm. the, the base game covers the second half and they've already been kind of beaten back, but they're there and, mm. and you, you know, you can go after them or they come in and they'll bother you or other players might ally with them. And there's a similar way in the um, follow on Area Vistas uh, prequel expansion that the... Um, a lot of the Celtic tribes are can suddenly well up into a, an automaton um, revolt uh, situation. So, um, yeah. So, so I've done it too, um, and uh, and and I like that part of that design. I'm, I'm proud of that part of the design, but it's not as um, again. It's a it's 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 at the edges. Uh -huh. 
So you, you mentioned none of the judges had the same top three. So uh, was there arm wrestling, bribery? Uh, <laughs> how did you how did you reconcile the the uh, the d discrepancy in the scorecards? I'm going to say there was constructive discussion. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what what um, what what happened was uh, if we had other overlap other than Vijaya Nagara, it was a case where um, either one or two of us really liked it and the other two had particular weaknesses that they, you know, that were that were vivid enough to them to say, I'm still confident that that one that is in your top three is not in my top three. And so it left it easy by by elimination to say, well, we're, we all think Vijayanagara is great. So, you know, and we're here, it's like kind of crowdsourcing, except there's only three of us, you know, we're here as, as a panel because we have diverse perspectives. And if, 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 in those diverse perspectives, we all come up with that one answer, there must be something to that answer, right? So that's why it made sense to me anyway, to, to finally decide it that way, because we had, we had one game of, 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 of the dozen designs that we looked at that we were all excited about and happy with. So with the first Consim Jam uh, behind us, uh, any tips for future participants? In, in, uh, and I gather from talking with Fred, they've, they've got uh, Consim Jam 2 in the, in the works, I suppose. Yes, which I guess will be a different, I, I, don't, I don't think if I, I know actually what the particular challenge will be. I mean, it's not gonna be coin related. Um, uh, yeah, recommendations. Um, Certainly, yes, do think about what, how are the judges going to be judging if you, you know, if what you want to do is to win. A recommendation is do it and have a great time, you know, <laughs> but, but past that, if, if the issue is what to recommend to, to, to win, because um, it is a comp, it is a competition, after all, it's a contest. Um, yeah, how will it, how will it be judged? And who are, do you, who are the judges going to be? <laughs> I'd want to know that. You know, if 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 that's um, revealable, because it's uh, because their predilections are going to come into play, aren't they? And so, you know, you can you can then you know shoot for those if you if you know who the people are. We definitely know that Mark Herman uh, has been approached and said yes. Um, I don't know if it's been officially announced beyond. Uh, it's public knowledge, so it's not something that um, we shouldn't do, talk about. Do, do, do we know what the challenge is? I don't think we do. I don't know if they've even said mm. that themselves yet. Um, and there's no set deadline for when um, they want yeah. to put something together. Or they, because they like to spring it, the thing on, you know, so that you really yes. only authentically yeah. have sent it right here. Here's what it is. Yeah, so so they won't they won't tell us what that is. Yeah, they won't But that us. Mark Herman will be a judge. Yeah. So, you know, and you can say there's Mark Herman has plenty of his thinking out there, right? Mm -hmm. So one could could do just, um, you know, uh, just gather your brief on on who is Mark Herman and what do you think he likes, right? Like a <laughs> that's job interview certainly, in that sense. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's feasible. Yeah, sure. Cool. Uh, well, that's a good segue to our next question. Um, since you brought up Mark Herman, and I know you obviously you co-designed another classic with him in Fire in the Lake. Um, 
is that really difficult working with someone else? And, and, you know, and I relate that to the Consum Jam in terms of, do you think that was a big challenge for some of the, the teams to know some of their, uh, their, their um, uh, people on their team and, and then not know some others on their team? I mean, what do you, what do you think were some of the, uh, I guess, yeah. pitfalls with working with other people? That I don't, I don't know. Uh, I mean, because I, I didn't do that. It wasn't evident, certainly, in anything I saw. Um, and it was, I know that it was people in different, some cases, different parts of the world, different time zones. Um, I presume in many cases they knew each other well. I mean, was, one was, um, two of them were just, um, at least two of them were families, you know, were father and children, uh, which was awesome. Um and in some cases, the I know in at least one case, the presenters were all in the same room, so they were physically together, but in other cases, not. So I, I don't know. I can only guess. It's just very, it's just amazing to organize. I mean, that's the other thing is just organizing that and collaborating takes time. And, uh, and, and, and to have um, gotten that done shows real uh, organizational skill, extremely impressive. I find it... Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a mixed it's a mixed bag. It, yes, you sometimes does take more time to work with an a, you know co-designers and a team than just bashing out your own thing. However, you end up with so much more interesting and in output, in my view. Um, so I I think most of my published games are co-designs. It's at least half. I think it's 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 most, and and I gravitate toward that because things come out of it that I that I know I I wouldn't have even conceived, much less been able to pull off. So, uh, and with regard to working with Mark, working with Mark is actually particularly easy, and I like to think that's because we come from the same kind of lineage um but it might just be you know who he is as a person i i don't know but it's usually very quick uh that if i mention something that might be an issue that he picks up on what that is and has a solution and when he um gives you know me inputs or let's say rough inputs like for example he'll list out here's a whole bunch of events from the vietnam war here's some effects you know write card and i'll and i'll come up with coin type card text right actual mechanical implementations of those events and all of that happens quite quickly actually so it definitely was a case Oh, go ahead, Peter. I'm sorry. So do you say that when you're working with a co-designer, does does that help in terms of what sort of is positively generated out of it more than, um, say, covering kind of like your own weaknesses? It sounds more like it's a, it's like additive rather than that you kind of cover bases that um, maybe you couldn't cover on your own. Is that true to say? Or are there aspects of design that um, you would traditionally find more challenging that uh, other people have maybe got strengths that you can draw on or... Could you talk about that a bit? So you're, 
You're implying as a designer, I have weaknesses. Is that... <laughs> I think everybody has weaknesses. <laughs> yeah, it's not no, I, I, <laughs> I absolutely think it's it's principally additive. It's principally that um, there there's then innovation, creativity. Uh, I mean, I guess, I mean, is, is it glass half full or half empty? Mm. It's, it's providing, um, it's providing something new that I, you know, that I can see and I can see it. And once I, once you see it, it's like, oh yes, of course that, that, yes, we should absolutely do that. Mm. I never would have thought of it, you know? So maybe that is a weakness. I don't know. <laughs> um, but but it is that's that's what's what's so exciting like okay and and, and here's the, here's this this thing that i it's some and sometimes it's we can do it this way and i think no that would i would have thought that's impossible mm. right i wouldn't have even gone there because i'm like that's not even in the ballpark and that's the way it's gone with the coin series um overall not just on the joint productions mm. but for example brian train so brian train and i did did volume three distant plane together of course um his then then he went back to Algeria, which he had gained before, and did um, Colonial Twilight Coin Series two player, mm. and I'm, and you know I mean I would it wouldn't have occurred to me to do a Coin Series two player. What do you you know it doesn't make it doesn't make sense, and it's fantastic. <laughs> so um, uh, so yeah, I mean this is this is so powerful to you know have uh groups of people who there's absolutely commonality there right you're you're coming from you understand what it is about this medium that is great and yet you are able to go places together that that neither one of you you know, would have even looked at alone. So it certainly sounds like there are benefits to co-design that are worth experiencing or exploring um, that you may not expect. And it's not just about um, you know, covering other things that maybe, you know, you're not so great at the graphics, so you draw someone in for that. And uh, just to link that back to the Consim Jam, you know, what a great way to, to throw yourself in. I think um, I will do it again next time, but I'll... Uh, I'm far more inclined to actually just get chucked in with a bunch of other people that I've never met before this time around. Um, and what you're saying really kind of encourages me to think that that's the right way to go as well. Um, so that's just really interesting. Um, so, you know, one question that we had that we wanted to ask you as we've got you here, which we haven't asked um, anybody else, but um, we were hoping you might have some insight on is when do you know, you know, you've got an idea, when do you know when a design is actually going to be viable? Um, you know, is it just a light bulb moment where you click and you go like, yeah, this is a topic that, that will work or does it take a lot of exploration or, you know, how, how does that work for you? Um, I, I, I think it's not until I, you know, you build the thing and you watch it run. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, board game designer Joe Miranda, you know, he used the phrase "energizer bunny." You know, it's <laughs> a lot of fun. But you, 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 you put this thing together. It's a bunch of parts and ideas, and 
you know, and, and you're, you know, as an engineer does, you're, you're projecting in your mind how it will actually operate when you have it physically. And then once you have a prototype and somebody is playing it, typically it's you the first time, then it's like you see your Energizer bunny run across the floor for the first time. And it's very joyous and exciting if it, if it runs. And, um, yeah, it's part of the, the joy of design is this, you know, seeing that physical in motion manifestation of your, of your projections, your concepts, your ideas. So I, I think I don't know until I'm playing it and typically to know that I really had something worthwhile because it has to be fun. Mm. You know, it has to be interesting. And this is, gets back to this, you know, having gameplay as a, a criterion in a contest. Um, I don't really know what the gameplay is going to be like. I don't really know how well the model cohere. I don't really know whether this game produces plausible historical results, interesting decisions, all that. I don't really know about engagement, right, mm -hmm. until I've played. And I don't really know it's something that is engaging for other people until other people have played. And so at home, until recent years, um, I had, you know, both my boys and they were into board games too. And they happily for me were eager to try out the latest, you know, thing that dad was working on. And if they played it and, it, and, and had fun with it, you know, they wanted to do it again. That was typically the moment that I was like, okay, yes, I have something. So out of all these people then, uh, since you brought it up, uh, who's the toughest opponent and of all your co-designers? Is it, is it your son? Is it, is it Mark <laughs> Irvin? Who, who is it? Do you mean the toughest opponent to beat in a game yeah. that you've designed with that person? Uh, oh, you mean playing our own game? Yeah. Oh, I'm terrible playing my own game. Uh, <laughs> no, my, my sons are, are both, Daniel and Andrew, my sons are both very, very hard uh, to beat. They're, they're both great players. And I've, I, and of course, I love sharing a hobby with them, as any parent would, and I love playing with them. But it's, it's always a, you know, how can I, can I give them a challenging game? That's kind of my standard, you know, and we will play a lot of um, games three way. And, you know, I put them both on a team against me, for example. We play War of the Ring that way. That's our, one of our holiday traditions. I put them on a team. They're on the same team, and they're against me. And then I've got a chance because it's the two brothers who are, you know, they're just clashing in terms of what strategy they should take. It's just <laughs> tough for them to be on a team. So that's really good. And then I'll do something that's like, you know, a little bit crazy you know to, to 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 shake things up and it's we have a phrase for it which is a dad move okay that was a dad move you know which means i just did something that made absolutely no sense but now they have to talk about with each other what are they going to do to react to this completely out of the blue stupid dad move you know and then you know we're off to the races and that's my entertainment but they're they're yeah they're the toughest players i know and then in terms of uh the uh it, when you get to that point with a co-designer on a on a game you've you've built together, do you have sort of a a tradition where you you play one final time at the very end and and go out to dinner, or how does the, <laughs> the co-designing process end? 
Um, so, you know, there's a handoff typically to the to a developer, and and then you go through that you know very long process of identifying and fixing problems and discussions, and then you get into you know now you're in three-way and multi-way discussions. And I, and I will say, boy, this is going to be really deflating. I shouldn't say this. I will say when you've gone through the 72 hours is one thing, but try, you know, try doing that for like three years or something and you're living and breathing this thing and you, and it's, it's, it's finally going into art, you know, and now it's really exciting. You're seeing the final, what the thing is going to look like in the end. And then it gets out. And at that point, I'm mainly interested in, how do people who've not been involved in that whole process reacting to it? And, you know, how does it, how does it do in the wild, right? Which is always different than the much more limited number of dedicated volunteers that you have to go through test and development. And other than maybe wanting to look at what it looks like physically with the finished art or be watching people play it, I'm, I don't want to play it anymore for the most part. <laughs> I don't want to play it just to play it because, you know, I've just been living with it so long. That's my typical reaction, actually. I'm, I'm not surprised by that. I, you know, it's like when a, a director says they don't watch their movies after they're done, you know, and it, because it is, it's such a consuming process. Um, yeah, it, that's, I think that's a great comparison. So I, I noticed um, as we kind of segue into um, a little bit more about uh, your um, design habits and things of that sort, Peter and I were talking about what an interesting uh, aspect of Nevsky was that you brought that Angola mechanic with you mm -hmm. th that uh, you had wanted to put into a game. Do you have other cool mechanics that are looking for a game? Uh, <laughs> like uh, that are your own or, or ones you just really like from other games? Um, wow, I don't have a ready answer. I think about it for a second because it's not typically the way I go, right? That is to say, in I think in historical con sim designs, you you don't typically go the, the way the challenge was put in Consum where you've kind of got a, okay, here's this batch of stuff, now go find a setting. You rather, I think, typically, you're interested in a setting, you're interested in a conflict, you're interested in telling a certain story, and how do you do that? And you start looking for mechanics from your grab bag, from your toolbox, from all the games you've played and other things you might have thought of or twists you can come up with to match... Um, to match. And so I think the thing with Angola and Nevsky was I thought Angola was a usually innovative late 80s for late 80s usually innovative design that you know deserved to have people steal from it and it hadn't happened and it was sort of you know why because and it's not just in the car why you know why did why was this game not more influential in the state of the art than it was. And because, and, and that's an, an opportunity. And I put that idea, you know, in my toolbox for many, many years until here's a place where it fits. Okay, Angola used these, the, the commands, 
to try to get at the inadequacy of joint command in the chaos of an immediate post-colonial um, civil war in the third world. And I thought, okay, for medieval operations with a, you know, there's a lot of reasons why command structures and command and control was quite shaky in the, in, in the medieval operational context. And I thought that would, that would, that would work, but, but it, I mean, I wouldn't have been, okay, I've got, I've got, I, I want to use Angola like command cards. So let me start a game design project. Yeah. It's, it's not the way I approach it. I love the so idea you, you, that games are worthy of being stolen from. Like it's the highest honor. Um, and I think that is the way that they should be looked at. You know, good ideas should be stolen. Is something that uh, Rashid, who I mentioned before, is the co-designer on the game I submitted to the jam. Like it's one of his favorite phrases. Yeah, good ideas are there. To yeah, be yeah. I and I I think it is an, an honor. It's it's, you know, we want to, don't we? We want to influence the state of the art. Mm. Right. I mean, we, we, we want to be impactful and because, because we care about the state of art, we're participating and we like to live on, you know, we want to reverberate and, you know, make an impression. And so if, if somebody somewhere, you know, uh, puts something in their design or does thing a certain way because they like the way it worked in your design, well, that's, just that's a fantastic feeling for a designer should be anyway and you do tend to accumulate a lot of cool mechanics since this is one of the uh you know there's not a ton of hobbies that you start as a kid and you just carry it with you all the way through uh baseball comes to mind but um so i'm sure there's a lot of cool mechanics that are uh just floating underneath the uh the conscious mind that are going to pop out hopefully at opportune times I think that's the way it works. Um, and I, again, I, I think of it as a, as a toolbox and how did you, you know, how did you accumulate that toolbox? It wasn't just, okay, here you go. Here's a box. I bought a box of tools. I bought it. No, I have to experience those things to put them in there. And if you compare it to writing, let's say no, novelists, right? How do you, how do you get to be a great writer? Well, probably always it's by reading a lot right it's it's by reading a lot so that you gain the vocabulary and you gain the concepts of structure and what's cool about you know characterization and plot and what works and what doesn't work and what you like and don't like all that you know so you're you're consuming a lot of uh of literature that influences you and then you're doing what innovation always is which is you're taking old ideas and putting them together in new ways for new purposes with new twists, right? You're adding to existing knowledge. And so, so it's a really difficult thing to do to take a mental model of a historical setting and express it in a compelling way in game mechanics. That is a, that I think is a non-trivial intellectual exercise, and that some people will do well, and and other people will not do well or can't do. But but what's happening when you do that 
is what you just described. You have all this library of these different um, ways that games represent things and ways that games resolve things and have players interact. You have all this library of that sort of thing. And, and now somewhere, somehow, either, you know, probably intuitively, sometimes expressly, but I think principally intuitively, the designer is, is taking that mental model of, okay, well, this, this is how, this is what was happening in Afghanistan with regard to the, the arms trade. How can I represent that on the game table, right? And you're reaching for something that's kind of like what you saw in other games, doing different things in other games, and you're changing it a little bit to make it fit better and, and deploying it by creating that mechanic for the new design. So maybe a hard question, but um, yeah, you mentioned how some, some designers are going to be more successful at this uh, creation and execution of a historical model in a game. Do you have a, a broad sense of why people may be successful or not successful? Or do you think it's too specific to the, each case? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, the, f the first half of it is that um, experience. Unless, I mean, again, there are always exceptions, you know, and, and maybe there's somebody who's a Mozart and they can do this from five years old. But for, for most of us, right, that you've built up you've built up a library right in your in your in your head of of mechanics but there's another big part of it too and that is um something that we can call systems thinking strategic thinking there's a bunch of phrases for what i think is all more or less the same thing and it is uh an ability to see consider understand and hold in your mind multiple moving interactions, complexity, complex systems. And I think it can be taught, but to some degree, I think there's an innate capacity for that as well. And if you're going to translate your mental model of a complex historical setting into these mechanics that you're drawing out of a library, a toolbox of game mechanics. You need that first part too. You need to have the kind of mind that thinks about and you know sees and thinks about those kinds of interactions and then here's the here's the trick simplifies them in a useful way because if we're doing something like war in afghanistan you know or the the cold war or battle of the bulge you know or um parliamentary politics in 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 in, in 19th century great britain and so forth these are all Kate, these are all complex systems. They're all the interactions of many human beings and the environment and other factors, constantly changing, learning, adapting. Um, and we're going to try to represent that effectively in a way that communicates and informs and transports players in 
a rule set and components that are simpler enough to put it in a box. And even if nobody who created the stuff in that box is in the room, somebody else can pull it open and operate that system, right? That model on the tabletop. So that is a, a massive purposeful simplification of, of, of the complexity of humanity, right? And that is, that is a great skill to be able to do that simplification that you need to do effectively to actually convey something like the reality of whatever that setting is. And that I think that also, again, I think it can be practiced and learned and you can improve, but my impression of people um, just in my professional life, for example, over, over the decades was that there were some people who, who could do that really well, just could do that really well, whether they were young or old and others who, you know, I was skeptical they would ever be able to do that. I think that's why diplomacy was such a mind-blowing game as a kid, because it very simply put you in all these uh, rage-filled situations with your best <laughs> friends in the basement. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's an example of a great success, right, of a brilliant work in that regard. It brings um, so much of the complexity of international affairs to life with a remarkably simple model. I used to use that in my world, uh, world history classes. Um, we'd start at the beginning of the year with risk during the Napoleonic era, and then you know, you'd make your way through the conflicts through the year. And it was always the quietest kids who were the best at, the, at diplomacy, because you, you mm -hmm. just didn't realize it, but they, there was a lot going on uh, upstairs, yeah. and uh, they, they tended to be merciless. Um, <laughs> and, and you can see, and you can see how that um, mimics or aligns with or foreshadows the kind of people who would be great diplomats, you know, or great um, politicians, for example, or great military tacticians. You know, they're all they may be loud or they might be quiet, but what they've got going for them is they can somehow see all these moving parts, all these other agendas of all these other actors, plus their own. And in the interaction of all those strategies, they can navigate and say, okay, here's the best way forward to achieve what I'm trying to achieve. And they're somehow able to hold all those dynamics in their head and you know, do the moves out in the, in the future. Um, and I know for sure, I mean, great politicians do that very, very well, right? They really can learn and see and understand what all of these agendas are in this system that they're swimming in and how do they take best advantage of that to, to move forward. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, I think you can see that in somebody's mind at a young age already, right? That they have that capacity to understand um, complexity, complexity in the, in the formal mathematical sense. So um, with that in mind, uh, we come to, uh, well, I guess, one of our last questions. Uh, what can we expect to see from you in the future, whether it's on the P500 or, or not? 
Well, for me, I'm, uh, you know, I've, you mentioned Nevsky, so that's volume one of a series, Levian campaign series, Medieval Operational Warfare. Almoravid is volume two set in Spain. The art is well along, so that should be out into the wild this year. And so I'm now turning seriously to a happily for me co-design of volume three, which is going to be set in medieval Italy called Inferno, like Dante's Inferno, um, which is designed together with Enrico Cherubi, a veteran Italian war game designer. So very excited uh, about that. And the other thing that you will see for me eventually back on P500 is a little game, um, Hunt for Blackbeard, which um, was on P500, didn't get the reaction that I wanted and pulled it out and are refining and improving it. I can't do anything in 72 hours. Um, (laughs) I I think I've been working on Hunt for, I don't know if it's three years now or whatever. And, and the other, and, and we're going to, and we are designing solitaire. So it's a double blind deduction hunt game that we're going to try to, uh, come up with a ways to have, to do it with one player and have the other, you know, the other side, uh, simulated by the, the, the game automatons in such a way that gives you a reasonable representation of the two player experience. We'll see. Um, and it's definitely one of those cases where, you know, I've got a design of one and a partial design of the other. That th- there need to be two because they're two different asymmetrical sides: the pirate hunters and and the pirates. And uh, so you need two automatons, two two bots. And uh, it's it it's gone. The first of those went to the play testers, and I think about fifty percent of the play testers hated it. So. <laughs> So it's one of those things where I don't know that the Energizer Bunny is running across the floor quite yet, but I'm determined to uh, to get that back onto P500 better than ever Hunt for Blackbeard. Do you enjoy solo design? I know a lot of designers are um, ambivalent about the idea of designing a solo version of a game um, that is supposed to be multiplayer. Um, I wouldn't have done it myself, so I when I did it for Labyrinth, mm. um, it was because Gene Billingsley um, challenged me to see if, you, if I had the guts to, to do it because he, <laughs> that game, which is about the war on terror, and he was concerned that nobody would want to play the terrorists. Mm. Uh, and so he said, you, you know, make it so that you can play it solitaire as the US. But it turned out it wasn't, lots of people want to play the jihad. They want to have the solitaire for the other side so they could be the terrorists against the United States. That wasn't the, the issue. It's just that we've discovered that that there's a very very high demand for that and the you know that a game is going to have much greater likelihood of acceptance if it if it gives you a solitaire system in the box so i did it for that reason i didn't do it because i wanted to do it but I, and then with andy and abyss the first coin series i said well if i can do it for you know simulating one opponent can i do it for simulating three opponents at the same time it was sort of a self challenge and uh, you know and then there was no going back um, but I do find it very challenging. And I have found that, again, that is, I think that is an area of, of weakness. I don't think I do that. I mean, I, I, I'm self-taught, you know, when I, what I came up with for Labyrinth and for the coin series, I just, you know, you know, made up this, you know, from, you know, how should we do this? I didn't really have a big toolbox there in terms of how to, how to design Salter systems to simulate normally um, player roles 
other people have followed in behind and do it much better. And, and I, um, you know, so Jason Carr can say a lot about that. Um, for Hunt for Blackbeard, I think this one, this solitaire design is the most challenging for me yet. And we'll see whether, um, you know, whether we're successful or, or if I need to basically call to Jason Carr for a life preserver. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jason, of course, being uh, the developer for many, many a game, many a series, but also GMT1, which was announced. Very GMT1, recently. exactly. The dedicated uh, solitaire design arm. Um, so I've, I have GMT1 sort of on tap via Jason. Um, and I, I have this, you know, I want to, I just want to meet the challenge of, and I do have ideas of how to do it, but will it, will they be fun is the, is the, 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 the rub. And I don't know yet. I don't know yet whether they will be, I mean, they will be before we'll have it before we go back on P500, but will my current approaches to doing that, um, yield the kind of results we want? Or will I just have to say, throw up my hands and say, help me GMT one. Would you say that's true generally with design that what motivates you is that sense of challenge? Uh, yeah. hmm. I think it's more exploration. Mm -hmm. I think for solitaire, it's challenge. And that's because it is a little bit more like Solitaire design for me is a little bit more like weight weight training, you know. Uh -huh. I mean, it's not necessarily fun, but I know it's <laughs> it's the it's the right thing to do. Um, I'm I'm motivated by tourism, and it it's you know time travel and visiting different places in times than I know already, which is part of the reason going back to the earlier point about sort of narrow pathways i want to go to new places mm. not the same places over again when i when i play board games and that's why i was a war gamer that's why i play the games that i do i want it, i want the game to take me somewhere that's new and interesting and exotic and and i design games for the same motivation it's it's a little it's a little bit different but it's it's related and that is, if you try to think about a setting in the way we've been chatting about, what are the, out of all that complexity, what are the key interactions? What are, who are the key actors and factors that need to be in your game? What are their ends, ways, and means? And how can you represent them? When you, and then you build the machine, you know, you, ha you build the little bunny that's supposed to run across the floor. And it does or it doesn't. Right, and this is the thing: you can write a history book, but if you have some big gaps in it, how will you ever know? Mm. If you design a model that has to produce historically plausible outcomes, right, mm. um, and it doesn't, you, it's, it's it's telling you something, right? Your you know your airplane is either going to fly or it's not going to fly, right? You know if you're an engineer that you've succeeded or not. And uh, and that's an even more powerful way I for me to explore history because I really then I, I find all the gaps in what I had in my mind I didn't consider this or I or that one I thought was so important actually doesn't matter you discover all those things when you when you model uh, a, a dynamic um, reality and so so that's kind of 
you know, you know, how do these things fit together when you put medieval military operations in motion? You know, what what comes up? What pops out of that? It's just another great way to to go travel to some new place. I couldn't agree Which more. I think is certainly uh, that certainly helped us get through the last year uh, by being able to travel elsewhere. Sure. Um, Journeys um, of the mind. Exactly. Uh, well, I, you know, I have to ask this question because I, I always lose when I play your games. <laughs> Any suggestions for for those of us who always seem to be on the short end of the stick? Um, well, you know, I'm the wrong person to ask. I do, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's interesting, but I do. I'm not not all designers are this way, but I know that that so, several of them are. Uh, I I have I am not a good player of my own games and it's probably because i'm always looking at them in terms of okay so how is the model performing and um you know and and so i make predictable historical moves <laughs> instead of exploiting the system to its maximum and so forth uh no i'm sorry you're gonna have to ask someone else on <laughs> but at least i could say i went to the source and i, I gave it a shot <laughs> Peter, any uh, any final questions for for our guest? I was just thinking, you know, what you were saying before is is a way of creating kind of testing or testable assumptions um, for for history through a model, uh, which I just think is very interesting. I don't know if I have a, a question that emerges from that, but do you think? Well, I suppose it is a question. Do you think that's a common way for um, people to approach? conflict simulation or is that something that's a new development uh no it's 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 not new and in fact if we go back to you know why do we have you know hex-based war games being so you know at the core of mm. historical conflict simulation or historical simulation on the tabletop in general right um and part of that, not the whole, but part of the answer is because of um, the hobby world moving in the same path as the analytic world in the 50s and 60s, when people like like Rand uh, are doing what had been going on for decades before that, which is wargaming, tabletop or floor <laughs> um, simulation at war colleges and the like. Um, to test hypotheses, in effect, right? To actually forecast, to to project, to say, well, if we follow this plan, what would the adversary do? And we're going to give that adversary life by having humans simulate humans and actually have a, an enemy team, and and come up with a a rule set to guide how these teams interact. Rule set and adjudicators typically. And we're going to do that for the purpose of getting better at fighting the real thing should it occur, right? Mm. And and so hobby gaming took that approach and said, well, we're going to, you know, we're 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 into the romantic past, and we're going to do that for Napoleonic Wars and Civil War and and you know past World Wars and the like. 
and uh, but but the techniques are, are are the same, and so you can do it also. So so that's that's sort of the history. More recently, um, historians even like Phil Sabin um, uh, have used the same techniques that hobby board games use to simulate history, to examine history, to test out, well, you know, there's a lot of conflicting information about, you know, how many troops there were in this particular ancient battle. Well, we, you know, we have, we, we have some reasonable um, judgments about how much space each soldier would take up and let's game it out and see, you know, as an experiment, as in another tool in the historian's box to, um, you know, v validate theories about how this thing really occurred. So you can, if you can use it in a forward-looking way, projection, forecasting, which is really hard, if you can use it usefully that way, you can certainly use it usefully in, in retrospective. And I do think that that is in there in the different aspects of why are consim tabletop games fun i mean there's a number of reasons right with social and competition and all that and i talked about tourism but if you think about you know some of the advertisements of the early war games now you were in command you know can you change history can you do better than the generals and admirals did back then so the allure there is Yes, you're going to a place that existed in the past. You're going to replay events that occurred in the past, but not exactly. You get a chance to rewrite history. You get a chance to change history. You get a chance to be even wilier than Napoleon or something like that, right? So, so that is part of the allure that you're that you're you've now got an experiment set, right? And you can experiment, well, what if he had tried to go around the flank? Or what if they had been more aggressive? Or the historians always criticize that this side made this particular mistake. Well, with retrospective, I can avoid that mistake. Let me see if I, what will happen if I avoid that mistake, and so on. And if it's a good model, you absolutely can do that. You can run experiments to test hypotheses. That's uh, I, that's neat to hear you say that. I, I one of the first gaming groups I was in, we played the heck out of uh, Bobby Lee from Co Columbia Games, and we would switch sides and we would try kind of uh, the reverse Shenandoah campaign, and you know, let me try and you know do the Peninsula campaign over and over again, and it was remarkable uh, that you know all those logistical uh, issues would keep coming up and then you'd read about it and you'd, you know, you'd see how they figured it out or, or didn't. And, and it, that design stood up with all that. And were you able to achieve different results from history when you tried different things? It depended on the player. Mm -hmm. um, I, as I said, I typically lose. So I was willing to, you know, kind of throw the Hail Mary pass, but it was very tough to get down there by Richmond with the terrain, no matter how you got down there. And then, mm -hmm. Um, you know, you started to see why the, you know, the ultimately the uh, the strategy was let's just methodically march down, you know, in, in an almost direct line to Richmond and, and avoid getting tangled up in the woods or the mountains. Oh, that is fantastic. Uh, and I, I love I love to hear those kinds of insights from 
trying it out and playing the game. And you compare that sort of what you were able to um, glean from those games and just now, you know, just describe here's, here's why they did it that way. Right. And whereas a typical reaction, you know, when you're reading a history and you don't get to try it out, you're just reading, you know, what happened because here's because, because it's not an experiment. It's not a model. It doesn't move. It's just a recounting of what, what they did. Um, and what happened is you typically get this, Oh, those people were stupid. You know, they just, they just went straight, you know, they didn't know any better, you know, whereas if I were there, I would know, go around, don't just go straight, straight in because you're just going to take a lot of casualties if you, you know, go to the middle. And, but when we get to try it out ourselves, and like I say, the model's effective, it says, well, if there's some representation of logistics, there's some representation of the geography and the terrain and time and weather, all the things, the key actors and factors that mattered because the designer cleverly simplified down to those, mm. then you can, you can so much, I think, more readily um, understand what was going on back then, right? Because that was a, a, a thing that operated by certain rules. And those who succeeded understood those rules the best and make best, took best advantage of them. And, and now you've got, I think that's just a higher level, you know, that's strategic understanding. That's a systems knowledge of that setting of, you know, the civil war in, in Virginia in 1864 or whatever it was, right. As opposed to a kind of a linear narrative, you know, they did this and then that happened and then they did this and then this other thing happened, you know, because when you're doing it, of course, at the time, it's not linear. You know, it's not yet a narrative. It's possibilities and interactions, and uh, and and we can actually get such a so much better an understanding of that when we when we play the game, right? I mean, I do, anyways. When I, you know, I I've I you know I I'm right now playing um, Ariskany from um, Mark Miklos and Don Hanley's um, Battles of the American Revolution. I mean, I've thought about that campaign a lot. I visited the battlefield, you know, gone up and down, up sitting here, done all that stuff. And until I play the game, don't, you know, I, when I play the game, I get a much better understanding of what were they doing and why did they do that? And why did it happen that way? Because I can appreciate what might've happened, but didn't and why it didn't, you know, because I can try it out. So with that in it, mind, like, what would you recommend for someone who wanted to design a game, like in terms of source material? Because I've I've certainly found that the more narrative histories do tend to give you that particular view, um, mm -hmm. you know, a linearity to it, and they don't necessarily get into the strategic dimensions. And you know, in history, we would call that a difference between a, an analytical piece and a narrative. There used to be quite a strong yes. distinction, and now, of course, that's been eroded because um, everything's everything's a narrative, but um, what would you recommend as a good way to get into source material? I, I mean, take in everything you can, but you got to take in everything you can, right? Mm. Because not all that many writers, this I think maybe goes back to the same question about the skill of being a systems thinker, a strategic thinker. Mm. Not all that many writers are, because it's hard to do, are readily able to convey these dynamics, right? Mm -hmm. What are the rules? What are the interactions? It's much easier to 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 just you know say, well, here are the facts, and you know what what we know, and 
maybe fill in some gaps. And um, when I thought about when we were doing Falling Sky, one of the things that makes Caesar's um, Gallic Wars so awesome is you read that and you you get the here's how Gaul worked. You know, I mean, it's in there um, in his in in the in the stories he tells, and you're trying to pull that out as a designer, right? You're looking for insights into what how, what how did the machine work what were the cogs and what were the pulleys what were the levers you know what were the the motors or if you think about it in terms of a creature you know your setting is an animal right it says you know what are the bones what are the sinews what are the muscles you know what are the arteries what are the nerves all that sort of thing right you're you're looking for in this in the sources and in in, in the historical writing clues to how how did the complex system operate what were its rules right and and they can you have to ferret those out and you have to fill in a lot of gaps because because probably when you design your game you're going to bump into some gaps in historical in the historiography right that nobody has bumped into because nobody else has tried to build a machine that will run to simulate that you're the first one doing it I'm I'm really uh, excited about the fact that speaking of all these kind of you know immersive experiences, uh, I I hope you pull off the the double blind deduction <laughs> because that's something that there's just not a lot of out there and and when you think about right. it, nobody knew up until you know whenever they they had the technology to better realize where the opposing forces were. A lot of battles were whoops we just bumped into you and. Uh, that's not a, an experience I think a lot of gamers have uh, because there's so many, you know, God's eye view or, or mm. what have you. Right. Yeah. And so we have um, well-established fog of war um, mechanics, right? Like blocks and, you know, hidden unit strength and uh, variable unit strength that you pluck out a chit when when it's time to find out and so forth and designers are coming up with with new ones as well um such as jerry white with atlantic chase has a new approach to uh the uncertainty of positions of naval forces uh interesting things and in hunt for blackbeard um since it's a hunt game um that's the main thing, you know, I mean, it's, you know, where is the pirate and how strong is he? Um, what do the hunters already know about where I am and what are they equipped with and, and where are they going to show up next? Right. So that's the main part of the, the game. And, and therefore, um, the double blind aspect, of course, has to be has to be key. And it's funny, going back to constant game jam, there's one thing I just that charmed me, too, is the, um, the, the there were two games on Boudicca's Revolt. And one of them, um, you have as the as the Romans, you can um, you can do better if you find where she is. Right, she's hidden among the Britain armies, and I, that's another kind of a thing that just to me it adds an additional. There's a hunt element in the midst of the operational campaign game. You know, it just that just adds just a lovely little 
bit of spice for me. That was the second place team with Boudicca's Revolt by Maurice Suckling and Dan Burt, who we spoke to a couple of weeks ago. And I would say there is one game, um, Dave, that uses the double blind method, a very famous one. Um, I'm not sure it's terribly good, but Battleship is, of course, <laughs> there is one precedent there. I don't know how much of an inspiration that was or uh, whether it was worthy of stealing from, but <laughs> certainly yeah, one there are inherent. Yeah, there are inherent ch challenges, but yeah, Battleship certainly um, endured and, and they're getting the, you know, the search aspect, the hunt aspect is, is in there. There was a line of games from Game Design's Workshop in the 80s, Double Blind. Um, there's one on Market Garden, hmm. 8th Army, North Africa, Normandy. And uh, I actually liked those quite a bit, but they weren't too popular. And one one challenge with Double Blind, this can happen in Battleship, but Battleship keeps it so simple that it's a lower risk. Um, this could happen fatally to the gameplay in those games is if you confuse your signals and, you know, you say you, you call out a hex number and your opponent who's checking a map behind a screen looks at the wrong hex and then therefore gives the wrong answer. You now have your two, your game state that is supposed to be a single game state behind both screens has now diverged. Mm. And, and you, you know, I had experiences with that double blind system where, you know, you'd play a while and then you'd, somebody would call it, well, I'm entering hex so-and-so. And I'm like, well, how can you get there? You can't be there. Well, yes, I can. And it turns out you've been, you know, playing with different situations because of a communications mistake. So that is, that, that's one of a number of, of challenges with that. Um, so hunt for Blackbeard, it's not as simple as battleship. <laughs> um, <laughs> But with that double blind element being necessary to the, to the simulation and to the experience, the point of the thing, um, it, it puts a particular pressure on me to keep the mechanics simple and also the game short. Um, so you're not investing a huge amount of time either, but to, to minimize the chance for that kind of communications mishap. You mentioned War of the Ring and that that sort of um, the, the disappearing fellowship as they make their way to the to Mount Doom. That's a pretty clever take on mm -hmm. fog of war. Yes, and very and that that is just a genius game. Um, not only genius in design, but how they balance that I, I, is amazing. You know, it's um, you know four way asymmetric in, in objectives, and it it's just a, a beautifully beautifully tuned design and very clever with the, the fellowship and the way they handle it there there's not actually hidden information it's just you know when it's time to reveal how far they've gone that's when the decision is made here's where it is and so there's really no way for that to to go wrong now there's some simulation issues with that but not to the degree that it disturbs the experience in that in war of the ring i think well, this has been wonderful to chat with you and 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 uh, discuss our uh, shared love of the hobby. But uh, you've been very generous with your time. We want to thank you for uh, chatting about the Constant Jam and your thoughts on on gaming and uh, some things that we're looking forward to seeing on the P five hundred soon. So I just want to say thank you again for your your generous uh, amount of time. Well, thanks. This has been great fun. Thank you for the the wonderful questions and conversation. 
Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll cross paths soon when uh, things open up and, and GMT is, is hosting their events. Oh, yeah. I can't wait.